Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio, where we talk about all the issues in the life science industry. This is Dean Finelli. I am very excited today to have as our guest, Mr. Prashant Yadav. He is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. Uh, Before we bring on Mr. Yadav, uh, let's see what's going on in COVID. Um, The virus seems to, Omicron data is coming in, seems to be, you know, we kept hearing about a milder version and certainly we don't want to say it milder means not serious but it does seem that uh when we look at this variant compared to the delta variant uh it is milder in the sense that less people are winding up in the hospital uh less people are are winding up severely sick but that said uh unfortunately omicron because of its mutations particularly on the spike protein uh, has reduced the efficacy of the mRNA vaccines, uh, the two-dose vaccines, uh, without the booster. So to be clear, uh, the mRNA vaccines are, are effective against the Omicron variant, but it's after you get that booster, that third shot. Uh, and that's very important. When we look at the statistics here, or the data here, it looks like after that third shot or that booster shot of the mRNA vaccines, Effectiveness goes up to back up to about 90% uh, when we're talking about preventing severe disease, preventing hospitalization. Now, without the booster shot, if you just uh, under the current definition of fully vaccinated, um, meaning you have your first shot and you get your second shot about a month later, uh, the efficacy or effectiveness of the vaccines keeping people out of the hospital against Omicron drops to uh about 50 to 60 percent. So you do get quite a bump by getting the booster. So certainly we encourage people uh, to go out and get the booster. Uh, The CDC is also uh, modifying some of its information. Uh, It told pharmacies to give a fourth COVID shot uh, to immunocompromised patients. Now, when we think of immunocompromised patients, uh, we know high-risk patients. uh, When we first started, we heard about comorbidities, people with obesity, diabetes, uh, kidney disease, et cetera, uh, we're at higher risk. Uh, those individuals would not be eligible for a fourth shot. When we're talking about this fourth shot, uh, we're talking about immunocompromised people, people that uh, are having cancer therapy, chemotherapy, or taking drugs, or for some reason have a depressed immune system that's not allowing them to generate that robust immune response. So uh, those people are the ones that would be eligible uh, to get this fourth shot. And, you know, I'm, that's why I'm very excited to talk to our guest today, uh, Mr. Prashant Yadav, because, you know, in the developed world, uh, in 
especially in the U.S., when we look at Europe, when we look at certain countries in Asia like Japan, uh, their access to vaccines uh, is, you know, almost taken for granted. You know, early on in the U.S., there were lines to get those initial shots. Uh, but, you know, as we look at it now to get boosters, um, it's readily access is pretty readily available. Most people are not having problems scheduling uh, to get these boosters. But, you know, we know this is a global pandemic. We know that all these variants that have popped up, particularly Omicron, particularly Delta, uh, have arisen uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, as it appears. And, you know, much of these sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of other developed countries, access to the vaccines generally is really uh, not as available as it is in wealthy countries. And even more importantly, when you talk about the mRNA vaccines, which really are, um, you know, maybe not the most effective, but at least at the top of the list, uh, those vaccines also are not available in many developing countries. So it's really interested today to get the perspective of uh, our special guest, Mr. Prashant Yadav. Uh, as I mentioned, Mr. Yadav is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, uh, an affiliate professor of technology and operations management at INSEED. Uh, Yadav's work focuses on improving healthcare supply chains and designing better supply chains for products with social benefits. Uh, he's the author of many peer-reviewed scientific publications that have been published in The Economist, Financial Times, Nature, and BBC. So we're really lucky to have uh, Mr. Yadav's uh, expertise on the show today. Uh, Prashant, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dean. Pleasure to be here. So the first question I want to ask you is, you know, how are developing countries, uh, you know, m making out so far? Is it that there are no vaccines available in many countries, or is it just the, the access is a lot less than, you know, when you look at the U.S. and Europe? Yeah, so it varies, but at the same time, I, I know um, until four months ago, I would have said most countries which fall into the low-income or, or many of the lower-middle-income countries, uh, predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, but also other parts of the world, had coverage rates which were less than 5%. Um, in, and the only exceptions were countries who had either a domestic production capacity, such as India, or countries who had negotiated and, and obtained uh, vaccines early from China or other places. Uh, but in the last four months, things have improved. Uh, part of it is the 400 million doses that the U.S. has donated or provided as uh, as doses through the U.S. program for global vaccination for COVID. Also, COVAX, that global facility for, for COVID vaccines for 92 low- and middle-income countries, has also gotten its act much better now, and they have more supplies, and they've supplied about a billion doses. So coverage has improved, but it's nowhere close to the kinds of coverage we see in the U.S. or many countries in Europe. And part of the reason why coverage hasn't improved is uh, not like what we see here in the U.S., which is you know vaccine hesitancy or or uh, people not necessarily willing to get vaccinated. Uh, it's oftentimes just lack of either availability of supply or the distribution and planning challenges, which means in particular for the mRNA we require you know ultra cold chain freezers. That's not the kind of infrastructure that exists in many parts of the world. So getting the vaccine out to people has been more challenging. Um, 
And um, there is also some element of vaccine hesitancy. So it's a combination of factors. Uh, I think the assumption a lot of people are starting to make in the last couple of months is, well, we've solved the supply problem. Now there is sufficient supply. Now it's largely a problem of delivering and distributing those vaccines in low and middle income countries. But I would refute that uh, on two grounds. One is that the total supply that is available today is still approximately 10 to 12 billion doses annual production. And a bulk of that consists of the vaccines manufactured by Sinopharm and Sinovac. Uh, and the world's preference in terms of demand is either towards mRNA or some of the specific adenoviral vector vaccines which have proven to be more efficacious. So the total capacity installed in the world isn't sufficient still. Uh, and on top of that, we have to think about a scenario in which we need, uh, perhaps maybe in the future, we need variant-specific uh, boosters or variant-specific versions or um, more frequent vaccination annual every couple of years. Then we would need more capacity. So I think one area that I want to remind uh, your listeners to is that we will need more manufacturing capacity for vaccines, even if in five years from now we have to accept the fact that uh, those plants may not be manufacturing as many COVID vaccines in three years from now, at least for the short to medium term, we do need more of that capacity. Yeah, that's an excellent point. When we earlier this year, you know, we heard some discussion um, in the U.S. about the Biden administration and certainly the WHO talking about uh, removing patents as barriers uh, to allow these developing countries to manufacture on their own. And one of the, the pushbacks that I heard was, you know, well, two really. First, uh, these mRNA vaccines, although, you know, not difficult to make per se, you know, when you manufacture them at large scale, they are difficult. So one of the, the responses was, well, if we set up manufacturing abroad, it's going to take too long to get the skill level high enough. And the second um, response I heard was, uh, and, and this was a little more compelling, was the the supplies that are needed uh, to make these vaccines are, th there's a lot of individual components that go into them. And basically, you know, quite honestly, Moderna and Pfizer were using up all those components. So they didn't want to kind of allow uh, developing countries to sort of waste time coming up to speed with the learning curve. Uh, are either of those uh, legitimate responses to this? Or should we just have th developing countries uh, allowed to manufacture the, the vaccines in their own locale? Yeah, I think both of those points uh, are meritorious, Dean. Um, one, we have to keep in mind that it is not the the bottleneck or the binding constraint in expanding manufacturing capacity isn't intellectual property restrictions. Right? And that is, is very clear. Yes, in the long term, it may be. But in the short term, to say next year, can we be manufacturing more or the year after, uh, there the barriers are exactly the two types that you described. One is know-how. Um, we have plants around the world who have the equipment or can have the equipment to manufacture even the most modern manufacturing platforms. But then we need to think about the, the chemistry manufacturing and controls people, the analytical chemists, the laboratory capacity to make sure there is uh, sufficient quality control and, and validation engineers and so on. So that's one part. The second part is um, the equipment that is needed, especially when we think about single-use manufacturing, which is 
in the single-use bioreactors that are made out of uh, specialized polymeric material that you don't have to clean after every batch. You can just dispose it off. Uh, that saves time. It's easier to install such equipment. Um, that equipment is not as available that you can quickly buy more of it. And the same is true of some specialized reagents. So there is a constraint on upstream supply, uh, which we've got to resolve if you want to expand manufacturing capacity. That constraint is higher for some specific types of vaccines, such as mRNA. Uh, and there is need for well-trained and skilled people. I'm not saying they don't exist in the world, but they are few in number, and that limits the number of places where we can start manufacturing. That said, this shouldn't come in the way of us thinking about what should be the manufacturing network of the future. It may not help us for solving today's COVID vaccine needs, but for future, whether it's COVID or perhaps even for uh, preparedness against future pathogens, there we do need to look at a more distributed manufacturing network. Once again, distributed manufacturing network does not have to be equated to um, freeing up IP completely. There are many other models of achieving that, such as through voluntary licensing, through partnerships. And I think that's where we need to focus our efforts to get this going. Yeah, and that brings up a, a the point that I wanted to bring up next about, you know, when we think about these vaccines, there was a lot of, you know, nationalism. I mean, certainly in the U.S., you know, taxpayer funding went to developing some of the vaccines and certainly with the uh, purchasing the supplies. But and similarly in Europe, so there was this idea that, okay, we paid for it. Let's immunize and vaccinate our people first. But when you look at what's, you know, especially with these last two variants, Omicron and Delta, I mean, that's really a, a reminder that, you know, look, you could do what you want in the U.S. If a variant pops up in South Africa or in another developing country where vaccines aren't available, it's going to wind up in the U.S. anyway. And now we know Omicron is, you know, probably more than 99% now, you know, what I read is correct, in the U.S. Looking back on this, what approaches, you know, could we have taken, you know, as you mentioned, with distribution and supply chains, to kind of mitigate some of these issues with, you know, variants popping up, you know, what, we, what would we learn from some of the mistakes that we may have made uh, in this in distribution and supply chains of the current vaccines? Yeah, Dean, so firstly, I want to reiterate what you said about uh, vaccinating uh, everyone in the world and, and how important that is even if we care largely about self-benefit, right? So typically the way we've heard this argument is that if you have altruism and you care about people far away from you in a different continent, in a low-income country, then you should think about vaccinating them. But that wasn't necessarily clear that it would also be the best thing to do if you are a very self-interested individual, right? But what has become clear from the two major variants that have come out is that even if we are largely self-interested in protecting our own population, even in that case, it is important for us to ensure that vaccination coverage is high in other countries in the world who on their own are unable to either access supplies or run their vaccination programs effectively. That means we need to go back and look at what could be done, uh, what could have been done better, and what can we do even now you know, for, for the future. And two ideas 
emerge from the way I think about it. One of which is the supply system needs to be much better coordinated um, across different countries in the world, in particular uh, the G20 countries, which is where most of the production of vaccines currently occurs, so that if it comes down to scarce input materials, bioreactors, single-use equipment, all of these things, there is a coordinated way of doing it, which takes into account the fact that our objective is not just to um, maximize the vaccine availability in our own immediate geography, but to protect the global population, which in a way protects us, given that we've already you know, vaccinated our own population to a certain degree. So that's one, which is having a coordinated task force, some mechanism of coordinating key input materials and supplies. The second is, um, if you accept the cynical view that you know, countries will care about their own population first, so whatever they produce, they will like to use as much of that to vaccinate their own population. We saw that in the forms of export controls, whether of, of different types in India, in the US, in European countries. Uh, then it begs the question, why not locate future manufacturing sites for vaccines in countries which have small populations? So that even if they if, imagine uh, a site which has a plant that makes 1 billion doses of mRNA vaccine and that country's population is 5 million, even if they take two doses for every single uh, citizen of that country, they would still end up exporting 990 million doses of that vaccine. And the footprint required to manufacture large quantities, in particular of the mRNA, but also other vaccines, is not that large. So you could make it in Singapore, you could make it in Seoul, you could make it in uh, Panama City, you could make it in, in many places which have smaller, or Luxembourg, smaller populations so that even after engaging in quote-unquote vaccine nationalism and keeping it for their own population, they would still end up exporting a bulk of the production. Yeah, they're really great points. Um, we are talking, this is Dean Finelli on Politics and Life Science Radio. We're talking with Mr. Prashant Yadav, um, who has worked closely with multiple country governments and global organizations in improving supply chains for medicines and health products. Um, Yadav has been a policy advisor uh, for many in many roles, particularly a strategy leader of supply chain at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, chair of the Market Dynamics Advisory Group of Global Fund, co-chair of the Procurement and Supply Chain Management at Rollbar, <clears throat> excuse me, Rollback Malaria Partnership. Uh, so really great to have uh, Mr. Yadav with us today. Uh, I know you're busy, Prashant, but the last question I will ask you is, you mentioned that things have been improving in developed countries over the last four months. Uh, where do you see uh, things going over the next six months in the developing world? Do we will we be in a, a position where we have a, a large chunk of developed countries, uh, maybe half, fifty percent vaccinated, or will we still be sort of playing catch up? So the target that we, the we here being the global collective of people who work on improving vaccine access globally had set, including WHO, was around 60%. We're nowhere close to that target. Uh, but we can get to that target of 60% in all, all countries around the world if uh, three things, in my opinion, can be put in place. One is similar to the U.S. effort in uh, donating excess vaccine doses. We continue with that. We make sure that it's not just the U.S., but other countries in the high-income uh, bracket, such as many countries in Europe, 
join the U.S. and do similar commitments. The second is uh, COVAX, the, the global facility for providing not just vaccines, but also vaccine delivery equipment and uh, other ancillary supplies that is fully resourced. They get what they need. They get the political support that they want. And the third is planning at the country level, right? It's not just about hard infrastructure and vaccine supplies. Sometimes it's the soft infrastructure. It's the people, the the vaccine administrators, the people whose job is to do safety monitoring and and moving at the last mile, uh, the monies, the salaries, the the per diems, the the budget for adding fuel to that vehicle that transports. And those are the things where sometimes the system breaks down. So ensuring that we have a right plan to do all of these activities and a resource plan, um, that can get us to that 60%. It's very doable uh, with with the caveat that we have uncertainties around what future variants will mean and efficacy of current vaccines and so on. So with those uncertainties, I think it's still doable. Prashant Yadav, Senior Fellow of, at the Center for Global Development. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really tremendous information. We talked a lot um, on this program about vaccinations in the U.S. and Europe, but it's very good to have that perspective and really important. As you mentioned, the in these developing countries, you know, most were well below where we need to be. Uh, so a lot of work still needs to be done and, um, you know, some really food for thought there, putting uh, facilities in some developing countries. I think that really sounds like an excellent idea. So things can speed up because in any event, you know, it looks like COVID is going to be here for a while. And even if we get through this in the short term, it looks like we're going to need uh, annual vaccination. So some really tremendous points. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thank you all for listening. It's been great to provide some of this information and look forward to talking with you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.